wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org that's truth number two letter you.org joining me is the director of education and counseling for jews for judaism in canada the website is jewsforjudaism.ca that's jewsforjudaism.ca welcome back to the program rabbi michael skoback Boy, we've had such a hiatus, Jono. <laughs> we really, really, in fact, we're playing tag. You've just been in Israel for a while. You've just come back. We're going to do a program and then I'm off to Israel. Okay. <laughs> How was it? Awesome. That's all I can say. That you probably heard a New York accent there. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, if you get me started, I'm just going to go on and on and on and start crying. It, 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 I don't want to make you cry. I don't want to make you cry. There's there's nothing as special as Israel. Give me two highlights. Two highlights. (sighs) Is it that hard to choose two? You know what? One thing that everyone knows this, everyone that goes to Israel knows this. You know, we we go through our lives and, uh, you know, we we always live with a certain amount of serendipity and, um, you know, a sense that, wow, you know, look, look at how things seem to be choreographed in our lives Mm. and everyone i speak to they say when they go to israel they get that you know to the 10th degree Mm. um you know it's it's a big city i spent most of my time in jerusalem it's a big city i don't live there you know it's not like i have millions of neighbors there I'm, i'm visiting for the first time in five years and yet i walk the streets and every time i turn around there's someone that i know and Um, so I, I uh, happen to be friendly with Rabbi David Aaron. Many of the, mm-hmm. your listeners might know him. So the last time I was in Israel, five years ago, I was visiting in uh, Machane Yehuda, the main uh, shuk, the main marketplace mm. in Jerusalem, yeah. which is a uh, gas to go to. Um, and th- then it was a late afternoon. I needed to go in and pray the afternoon prayers. So I popped into a little teeny synagogue mm-hmm. and I sit down, I turn around and there's Rabbi David Aaron. <laughs> and he, he says Beautiful. to me, he says, wow, he says, I never come to this synagogue. And I say, well, really? I certainly never come here. No. <laughs> so that was five years ago. This year, um, so we went to, there's a new museum in Jerusalem, which if you have some time, because uh, it was built in the time since you've been there last, huh. um, right near um, the new Majbir, that's, I guess it's called Kikar Shabbat, the, off of the Midrachov, uh, so King George and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, all the, the street performers there. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's right in the middle of Jerusalem. So there, there is a new museum of um, music, the Music Museum. Oh, Jason uh, was telling me about this on Israel on Mind on our other, other program. Yeah, what did you think? It was good. Fascinating. Well, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was not. A, I don't think it was fully done yet because they hadn't. I don't think uh, fully um, set up all of the um, of the exhibits for different languages, but it was pretty completed. And uh, did they have know, a they did had, they have a Bob Dylan exhibit? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> they, they basically the, what we saw were, were dozens and dozens of very ancient um, musical instruments going oh, back, truly. you know, maybe thousands of years. Some of them, and they uh, so you had the the instrument there. They had a description of it, and then there were headphones that you could wear and actually hear how this instrument would sound. Wow. 
And uh, it was actually fascinating. And then, um, actually, they had – I couldn't understand why it was there. They had a room with a replica of the ancient temple, the second temple. And you could put on these uh, – I guess it's called a virtual reality headset mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. um, where it was quite startling and dramatic. We actually felt like you were literally walking – in the temple, you could actually almost reach out and touch full-size priests that were walking by. Wow! It, it, it was it was actually it was um, it, it was overwhelming because it, it it took you to a different, I guess, virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> you know, I never had that on before, and um, it, it was sort of startling. You, I, I found it disorienting almost to to yeah. be sitting in this seat and yet. Um, have all these things in another world taking place, but it, it felt very, very real. And uh, anyway, it was an amazing experience. Uh, my wife and I were both blown away by this, and we actually did it twice because it was just so um, impactful. And th- then it got late in the afternoon, and I had to pray the afternoon prayers, or as we say, I, I got to pray the afternoon prayers. I, you know, <laughs> I had the privilege. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, right near this place is a very tiny, tiny little synagogue the size of my little office here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I pop in, and I finish praying the afternoon prayers, and I turn around, and there's Rabbi David no. Aaron. <laughs> so, you know, so… What are the odds that of that? Con- I I felt like playing on the lottery, um, but it kept on happening. You know, I would turn around and see this person. I would, you know, uh, go to this place and meet that person. Um, you know, I, I was trying to find my grandmother's grave in Jerusalem in a cemetery where you can't find anything. And uh, just as I'm about to leave, someone comes running over and, you know, gives me a phone number where they're going to just guide me by some computer system. Wow. So, I mean, and, and it's just, you, you just felt like your life was, you felt the choreography of life, um, I think, in a more deep way in Israel. Mm. You know, the Bible says that the eyes of God are on the land of Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Mm. And so, the sages speak about the idea that there is more uh, divine providence that sort of um, you know, is directed towards the land of Israel than other places in the world. And I, I, I always, whenever I go to Israel, I feel it. Mm. I feel it deeply. Mm. Um, another highlight, I mean, I had millions of them, but uh, I had many personal goals that I wanted to um, accomplish there. One of them was not a happy one. Uh, after 9-11, after the attack on the World Trade Center, Mm. I felt that I actually had to go to ground zero. I felt that that was holy ground. Um, And about nine months later, I went there, spent the whole afternoon there. Mm. And uh, something similar took place this trip. Um, Many people remember a number of years ago, there was a horrible massacre at a synagogue Mm. in Jerusalem. And uh, there were four people killed. One person actually was axed in the head, mm. and he lingered for about a year, and he died a year later. That, he, mm. that fellow was from Toronto, where I live. But the first person that was shot and killed was a classmate of mine. Oh. And uh, two other people that were killed of the four people that I knew. Um, so, I felt for years now that I have to go to that place. Mm. I had to be there, mm. and I had to… 
um, just uh, be present with uh, you know the the holy ground there, and mm. so I made it a point of of doing that. Um, you know, I got to see so many people that it's interesting that over the past five years, I've gotten to know hundreds of people online, virtual friends, and I was able to connect with many of them for the first time face-to-face in Israel, mm. which is to me always uh, an incredible experience to, to, to upgrade a relationship from virtual to real. Yeah. Um, and I got the chance to spend time with, you know, friends like Ira Michelson and his wife Leah, mm. and with Rav Moshe, with uh, with Dror Moshe Kasuto in Israel and Jerusalem there, and uh, so those, you know, it, it's it was very full. It was, you know, I kept a journal, and my wife and I were just seeing how every day felt like ten days. Uh, so. Yeah. You know, everyone that's gone to Israel knows that this is this is what it's like, and uh, I just can't wait till I can go back. Yeah, I know. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the listeners have missed you. I had a lot of people write in saying, hey, um, Psalm chapter 8, anytime? <laughs> 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 Which we are doing today, so it's wonderful to have you back. But I understand what you're saying, and I can't wait until I am there. Uh, very, very soon. We are continuing in our series, uh, exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, and asking the question, who composed the psalm? What is it about? Uh, What's happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? Also, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm, and how does that deviate from the original intent? These are some of the questions that we've been asking, and I want to return to the, uh, the, the Museum of Music that you were referring to, because our our psalm kicks off, uh, Psalm chapter 8. It says, uh, to the chief musician, now I have here uh, on the instruments of God. Did you say cheap? Did you say cheap musician? No, no. <laughs> Just give it to the cheap musician. <laughs> we're running, the budget is running low. <laughs> to the chief musician. Uh, on on the instrument of Garth. Now, is that uh, an instrument known to the area of Garth, or is it an instrument? I've got another translation that says uh, for the leader on the gitit. Well, <laughs> the actual Hebrew is gitit, mm-hmm. um, and it's not really clear what this is referring to. First of all. Um, uh, it seems that the simplest way of understanding this is that this is a psalm that was intended to be played on an instrument that was called the gitit. Um, although I don't know if anyone on the planet knows what this instrument is, um, there are many theories uh, about this. Some people think that gitit is not referring to an instrument per se. But the word "got" in Hebrew, in Hebrew, is a wine press, and so some people think that "gitit" is referring not so much to an instrument, but to a tune or a melody that people would sing while they were treading grapes, grapes. in this right wine press or, or "got." Sure. Um, some people think that "gitit" is the name of a musical instrument, but it was from the city of Gat, which was in the area of the Philistines. Um, there's a more elaborate theory, which is that um, uh, we know that the Holy Ark um, was was temporarily safeguarded for three months by someone named Oved Edom, who was a Gittite a, from from the city of Gat, mm-hmm. and so it happened to be there for three months. And then David, we know, then took the Ark 
back to the city of David to be more permanently held. Mm -hmm. This is 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 10. And so, one theory is that the Holy Ark became known as a Gitit, as Gitit, um, or that simply David, um, uh, you know, associated this particular psalm with the Holy Ark, and some people uh, suggest that he composed this particular psalm to refute people who deny the Torah, which was kept in the Holy Ark. Um, it's interesting that we'll get to this this a little bit later on in our discussion. Mm. But um, a lot is made of this idea of the wine press, and uh, we'll see that some people will compare uh, the Torah itself to uh, a wine press, because in the same way that um, the grapes have to be crushed in order to yield, you know, mm -hmm. uh, something that's drinkable, the Torah itself needs to be studied and and analyzed and, and, you know, sort of crushed in order to, to yield ideas and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, thoughts. But Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, you know, uh, really alludes more to one of the things that this psalm will, will be discussing, which is, you know, what's going to happen to um, mankind, at least the people among the mankind who resist God's agenda, who resist the Torah, who resist truth. And, uh, you know, he says that the idea is not that they're going to be crushed and destroyed like grapes, because he says that the grapes are not destroyed in a wine press. He says that what the wine press does is it brings out the tremendously wonderful contents that are locked up within the grapes. Mm -hmm. So, he says that one of the things we're going to see in this psalm is that um, the way God will deal with mankind will ultimately be to lead them, ultimately, to a universal recognition of the truth. The, the, God's agenda is not to destroy his opponents, right? We, we see throughout the Bible, like in Ezekiel chapter 18, right, where the prophet says that God's desire is not to destroy people who sin, but mm. to transform them, to reform them. But he has no um, no uh, pleasure in the death of the wicked. Right. That's not what God wants. God, you know, seeks really to have people transformed. And so, the, the wine press is a, a symbol not so much of the destruction of the grapes, but really the transformation of the grapes into something uh, that really uh, is even more valuable than a grape itself. You know, uh, fine wine will, will fetch you much more than, you know, a whole bundle of grapes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, there's an illusion, according to some of these commentaries, that as we progress through this psalm, that, you know, even people who are opposed to uh, God and his agenda and his truths will ultimately be transformed by God. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are, you know, there, there's no real clarity when we try to really, you know, zero in on what does this mean when it speaks about th this is a to the to the uh, conductor, you know, either on this gitit, which would seem to imply that it's on an instrument, or you know, regarding the gitit. Uh, so we have a number of possibilities, and you know, maybe one day we'll know for sure. Yes, no <laughs> doubt. Well, it, it kicks off this way. It says, O Lord, our Lord. And, and of course, that's two different. We have the tetragrammaton there. And then is that Adoni? 
So it's um, Adonenu, our Lord. Our Lord. Adonenu. So uh, if, if I could say yud he vav he, our master, would be a fair uh, translation? Uh, that would be okay. Our, our Lord or our master, yeah. Mm. How excellent is your name in all the earth? And therefore, you know, it's necessary to, <laughs> in the English, to, uh, to highlight the difference in, uh, in those words. How excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower. Now, I have a little lower than the angels. We're going to come back to that, of course. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Michael. That sounded beautiful. Um, You know, uh, we're going to see that in this psalm, I mean, I don't want to go too much ahead. Um, It really really boils down to a a tremendous paradox or even, uh, um, you know, something that seems impossible to, um, to really reconcile. Because there are two uh, things, two themes that we're going to see develop in this psalm. One is that the 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 majesty and the glory and the magnificence and the you know the awesomeness of the universe, um, you know, makes man feel very small. Mm. Um, I remember when I was in ninth grade, or I think it was eighth grade, I had a physics teacher named Mr. Finn. And he was describing to us how space is infinite, that that if you just go out into space and you keep on going, it just doesn't end. Mm. And I remember I was a, a kid, but I remember I was trying to – I guess I was, I was visualizing myself in a, in a spaceship traveling and, it, and, and never getting anywhere. It just keeps on going and going and going. Mm. And I remember I, I, in the middle of the class, I just started crying because it was hurting my brain. Mm, mm. <laughs> I just felt, this is crazy. How could the universe be so huge and vast? So, one thing that happens in this psalm is it paints a picture of how vast and complex and grand and magnificent God's creation is. You know, every aspect of it, from the heavens to the earth to the creatures. And, you know, in the, in the face of this, we would feel very small and insignificant. Mm. And that's really what's painted in this psalm. You know, we we would feel that way. It's sort of normal. And in spite of the fact that, you know, we are very small in the scheme of things, um, God places us on a very, very high level, right? As it says, you know, even just a drop lower than angels. Um, So, there's this uh, tension and a a paradox between the smallness of man and And the value of man, the greatness, Mm. the grandness of man. And so, um, what's interesting is that this 
it, it begins here, I guess, in verse 2 in the Hebrew uh, version. Um, it really speaks about the fact that God's glory, and it, it's very hard to translate this word. You could translate this word as, I'm, I'm not sure how you read it, but it could be splendor or praise or honor or glory. That God's glory really belongs even above the heavens. Mm. Meaning that, but in spite of the fact that his glory belongs beyond the heavens, but God in his great humility placed his majesty upon the earth. Um, and that's what it says in the very beginning. It says, oh, eternal or, you know, uh, the, the uh, Tetragrammaton, our mm. Lord. How mighty is your name over all the earth. Um, meaning that you you place your majesty upon the earth, but the truth is that your glory or your majesty belongs even way beyond the heavens, um, and that's the question. Meaning that you know the earth, in the scheme of things, is one planet, um, and so if God's glory and majesty really transcends the even the heavens themselves, what is it doing being placed down mm-hmm. here upon little planet Earth? How do we comprehend it? It's 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 not. I mean, just as you were talking it's going about, to hurt your brain. Yeah, it's going to hurt your brain because I was watching, and and a shout out to uh, to my friend Ken Lane. I was on his uh, Facebook page today, and he he shared a video of the grandness of the universe, uh, the known the the map of the known universe, um, and, uh, and and watching, uh, you know, panning out from the Earth uh, past the solar system. Uh, out into uh, to, to you know view the galaxy and then other galaxies around us panning out even further until eventually uh, we have a, a map of the of the known universe and there's been some discussion about this lately in the news and uh, and then even posing the uh, suggestion of course of multiverses multi verses beyond that of our own makes you feel so uh so small that you, you you cannot you cannot comprehend it, and when you read uh, these verses, it it um, <laughs> it doesn't help. How can we be so significant? Uh, how can God have made us so significant when we are are, are but dust on a piece of dust yeah. in the grand scheme and, and of things? And it's it it applies both to the earth, right? Meaning that why did God choose to center? all of this activity here on planet Earth, right? Planet Earth is, uh, you know, infinitesimally small Mm. in the scheme of the whole universe. And then, you know, on planet Earth, um, why do we become significant? Meaning Mm. that, you know, we're not as big as an elephant and, uh, you know, we're just one, I mean, maybe we're smarter than other species, maybe, um, but uh, maybe some people are, (laughs) but... (laughs) You know, that's part of the tension here that, you know, we live in a vast universe and, you know, and God's and, – and God is beyond – forget about, you know, these multiverses and universes and, you know, and, and the galaxies and, and, you know, it's, it's infinite. Mm. And, yet, and God is beyond that, mm. right? And his glory is beyond that. And yet, somehow, he brings his majesty upon this earth. And one of the ways, you know, what does it mean, by the way, when it speaks about God's glory? What is it talking about? And so, one of the things that in rabbinic literature is understood is that it's referring to the Torah, that what God has placed upon the earth 
and given to mankind is his Torah. He's mm. given us that. And and that, on some level, is what makes uh, um, you know mankind worthy, um, meaning that if we live up to that Torah, if we follow it, then maybe we are worthy of God's attention and God's elevating us. And, you know, if we don't, if we ignore that, um, maybe we're not worthy of God placing all of this, you know, uh, greatness upon us. Um, and so, we'll get back to this idea of, you know, even though ultimately God's um, glory beyond, is, is beyond the stratosphere, beyond the, 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 the galaxies, mm. he, he, in his humility… He places his majesty, splendor, Torah upon the earth and gives it to human beings. And um, again, you know, this is a, not a simple concept or, or idea, but, you know, I think it'll become clearer, hopefully, as we go through the psalm. Um, should be mentioned as well, uh, of course, David begins the psalm that way and he ends the psalm that way. Uh, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how how. Excellent is your name in all the earth. It's enveloped in that verse. And, we uh, will see, that, by, by the way, right, that he doesn't really end in the same way he begins. Oh, true. Right? Because the last verse truncates that first verse. Right? The first verse says, you know, eternal our Lord, how mighty is your name over all the earth. You have set your majesty upon the heavens. But the last verse is, O eternal our Lord, how mighty is your name over all the earth. Nothing there about the heavens. Mm -hmm. So, we'll have to discuss when we get to verse 10 why, you know, King David, um, you know, only really, uh, you know, recapitulates part of that original verse. Okay. Well, we will get there. Okay. Verse 2. Uh, now, th- I found this curious. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Well, it, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, all we kind of get is crying or goo-goo-goo-ga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, um, uh, is this more of a, um, a, a referring to mankind in general? Uh, I mean, we're, just talk- we're talking now about the greatness of God. Then is he seeing mankind as general in general as uh, – um, you know, babes and, and nursing infants. I'll give you my take on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's described, uh, you know, the magnificence of the universe, um, how incredible the, the world is, how vast it is. Mm. And, um, you know, he speaks in this verse, this is the, the verse three, speaks about um, putting an end to or silencing the enemy and the avenger and, uh, you know, somehow um, that, um, you know, out of the mouths of infants and, and sucklings, you've established strength because of your tormentors. Um, so, somehow there's a, um, a setting one against the other. Somehow this phrase of the infants and the babies um, comes as a counterpoint to the tormentors and God's enemies and avengers. Um, my, my take is this, that children are not cynical. They're not jaded. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they see things often more clearly than adults. They experience the wonder of the world. Um, and to them, the wonders of creation, you know, are the wonders of creation. You know, um, 
you know, children are just fascinated by the world. Mm. Uh, and they see, really, uh, to them, the world is just an adventure. And, you know, the, the people that, you know, would deny reality, would deny truth, would deny Torah, would deny God, would just, you know, approach, you know, the world with a tremendous amount of cynicism and, um, you know, and uh, skepticism and denial and blindness so I think that that's what's happening in this verse. It's that, you know, um, it's just these simple, um, pure, innocent um, babies that have not really had a chance yet to become cynical and jaded and skeptical and, and be in denial and be blind to the wonders of the world. They become sort of the, um, you know, the answer, really, uh, to these people who, you know, the word in Hebrew is tsorarecha, tormentors, but it, it's from the really word, tsar means to restrict, to confine. It's related to the, 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 the Egypt is mitzrayim, it's very similar, I mean it's a narrow space. And so, you have, you know, so many people that want to sort of constrict, uh, you know, the, the wonders of the world into a, they want to put God into a box. Mm -hmm. They want to, you know, you know. Rabbi Shimshon Rafor Hirsch says that there are people who they just don't have any room in their life for the spiritual, for the wonder. Uh, you know, they're just jaded and they're miserable and they're negative and they're, you know, they're just they have negative energy and they bring everything down. And uh, they squish the life out of everything. Mm, mm. You know, like you go to a party, you know, everyone's having fun at the party. And you have, there are people who just bring everything down. Um, <laughs> they just squeeze the, the life out of everything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the kind of energy that opposes that is the vibrant, joyous, happy, wondrous, you know, uh, reality of just a child, a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just so pure and, and beautiful. Um, that's really, on some level, I think, the, the antidote. Um, now, we know that this verse is quoted in the book of Matthew. Um, it is. That's right. Yeah. Matthew right, uh, chapter, let me say, 21, verses 15 to 16. And it says, uh, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he, that it be Jesus, did, uh, and the children crying out in the, in, in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they're indignant. And, uh, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, well, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perf perfected praise is what I've got, which is different to what I just read in, uh, in Psalm chapter 8, perfected yeah, praise that's as sort of a, to ordained strength. It's, sort of a mis it's a mistranslation, but... Um, I wouldn't make a, a federal case out of that. Mm -hmm. um, but the question is, you know, is this really… Um, the application of the know, verse. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, Jesus, first of all, t takes this passage here in Psalms and almost turns it into a prophecy, which it's not. Mm. Uh, clearly, the writer of the gospel um, is assuming that… This verse in Psalm is about the Messiah and by extension about Jesus, which it's not. It's about praising God for his works, for his 
you know, magnificent universe. Mm. And so, you know, it, it's clearly an example. I mean, we did this when we were doing our series on messianic prophecy. Mm. Um, you know, it's a verse which is basically being wrenched out of context. Um, it, it's not really being applied in the way the verse is actually meant. Um, if you want to be generous, you could say that Jesus is just quoting it very playfully and, uh, you know, he, he's not really serious about what the verse means. But then the question is, how would it then be an effective uh, refutation or response to these people that are, you know, that are upset with him? You know, mm. it, it would not mean this to them. I mean, that it, you can only use a verse when everybody would agree on its meaning. Mm. So um, this is not yeah, effective it, ammunition, is what you're saying. And if he, he I, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. He, so he says this to them, and they're they're supposed to go, oh, oh yeah, of course, oh idiot me, of course. Sorry, continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it yeah it has to have some you know if you're going to use a verse um, you know to to make a point, everyone has to understand the point. Otherwise, it's sort of um, it, it, it's it's meaningless to, to use it if it just if it only has meaning to you. Um, and what and is so the it has to be contextually yeah. accepted to, to make a, a uh, uh, an impact. Yeah, I would say. It continues on in verse uh, four. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. That's interesting, isn't it? We usually have the work of your hands. Here we have the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Right. That's that's the question we raised before, meaning that right when you think about the, the vastness mm. of the universe, you know, w w what's the significance of man? Meaning that what, why uh, does man have any significance? Um there are a few things, actually. You know, you point out that this verse speaks about the fingers of God, and mm. usually the the Bible refers to the hands of God. Some people say that, you know, by using the expression of fingers, um, it's sort of stressing the idea of the complexity of creation. It's a very delicate work, meaning that, you know, when you're looking at a, a work of creation, you know, it's not simply – you know, a, a big bang that resulted in a mess, but it's it's intricate and it's it's carefully designed. Mm. I, I remember when I was, you know, in high school, we were looking at you know cell structures under the microscope. You know, it's mind blowing. Mm. You know, and it, every element. I mean, look at just the structure, the the intricate you know, nature of almost everything that's created. You know, you get the sense here that there was almost, uh, you know, a surgeon that was, mm. that, was, that was working on this. So, that might be the reason that it speaks about the fingers of God. Sure. And it, it mentions here, interestingly, you know, the stars and the moon, but, but it doesn't sun. speak about the sun. Mm. You know, what happened to the sun? So, well, I suppose uh, you could say, I suppose you could say, I mean, uh, we understand the sun to be a star, and but usually uh, we have a separate mention of the sun, yeah. um, and that doesn't appear here. I mean, it could be. I mean, I've seen many uh, discussions about this. It could be that um, this is sort of like a very simple idea that, you know, we can gaze at the stars and the moon. You really can't gaze too long at the sun. No, um, and you can't gaze at the sun, at the stars and, and the moon and get a, a a vague idea of the vastness of the universe if this if if it's daytime. You've got to wait until the exactly. sun is down, right? 
Exactly. Um, now, what's interesting is that um, you know this uh, idea of looking at um, you know at, at sort of you know not just looking at but you know contemplating really the mm. the heavens and the works of God's hand. Um, you know, we, we have many passages. For example, Psalm 104, verse 24, you know, it says, How great are your, you know, works, God. They're all made with wisdom. You know, the whole worth, you know, whole, the whole earth is filled with your possessions. The, the, the idea, um, Maimonides, for example, Moses Maimonides, he bases his whole, not the whole maybe, but he bases a large part of his his. Um, thinking about the commandment to love God based upon this idea, being that he says, how does a person come to love God? And he says in his works that if a person just contemplates the vastness of the universe and how complex, not just vast, but complex it is, and how beautiful it is, it'll just thrill a person to come to love God. In the same way, I suppose, you know, if you listen to beautiful music, you know, you. I, I got to meet the composer. You know, mm-hmm. it's like. So um, this is a very popular theme, not just in the Bible, but in uh, rabbinic literature. There's a famous uh, story in the in the midrash where a heretic comes to Rabbi Akiva, and he challenges him. He says, "You know, who created the world?" And Rabbi Akiva says, "Well, God did." And the heretic says, "Well, prove it to me." So, Rabbi Akiva says to him, what are you wearing? And the fellow says, I'm wearing a tunic or whatever he was wearing. Rabbi Akiva says, well, who made it? And the, the fellow says, well, it was made by a tailor. And Rabbi Akiva says, well, prove it. So, the fellow says, what do you mean prove it? He says, it's obvious it was made by a tailor. Who else would have made it? So, he says to him, well, if it's obvious to you that you know a garment that you're wearing was must have been made by someone – you know, then obviously the whole universe that we're inhabiting must have been made by someone. It doesn't just, hmm. you know, come into existence. There is a famous, you know, parable that's told about, you know, uh, again, a skeptic who comes to a philosopher and, you know, is questioning the existence of God. And uh, he says, no, I don't believe in God. You know, this, the, the world just came into existence. And uh, the philosopher changes the topic um, and then walks over to this beautiful painting on the, on the wall mm-hmm. and is looking at it. And the skeptic says, wow, that's an amazing painting. How did, where did you get it? So the philosopher says, well, you know, it's interesting. That what happened was this was a blank canvas that I had in my house. And uh, there was an earthquake here years ago. <laughs> And it knocked over all these cans of paint in my house, and it formed this beautiful painting. And the guy says, "That's ridiculous." You know, he like he says basically it's impossible. You know, like for a paint factory blow up and to produce the Mona Lisa. Hmm. And so the father says, "Look, whenever you see something that looks designed, there's a designer. It doesn't happen by accident." Hmm. And so you know, these are this has always been um, a very very important and critical. Um, you know, uh, approach to really thinking about uh, the idea of a creator that designed and formed the mm. world. But then, as you say in verse 5 here, you know, if we have such an incredibly vast and complicated and grand and, you know, uh, world that just is so big it can give you a headache, 
so really, what is man um, that God even can remember him or think about him, or the Son of Man that you know God will remember him? Mm. I mean that, given the vastness of the world, you know, what is the significance of man? I mean, we are we really that special? If you mm. just look at us, we're just maybe you know an ape that has a, a few more brain cells. <laughs> Um, it's hard really to understand, you know, in the scheme of things, why are we so significant? Mm. Um, by the way, it's interesting that um, verse, the previous verse, um, you know, speaks about the grandness of the universe. And this verse here really speaks about the idea that it should instill in us a feeling of humility and smallness. Mm. Um, and the Chafetz Chaim, a great sage who passed away in the year 1933, he said it's ironic that so many great, great, great scientists who were prob- probably the most aware of the greatness, mm. the vastness of the universe, yeah. <laughs> they're often the most arrogant and, uh, you know, skeptical. Mm. Um, now, with, with that in mind, and this is, uh, I think, perhaps uh, the most curious verse in this chapter, and this is verse 6. For you have made him a little lower than, and as I mentioned before, I have in my translation, the angels. And that's generally uh, the translation that, that I see. Uh, it goes on to say, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, that word is not angels, though. What do we have there? Well, it could be angels. I Meaning, the word itself means, is written in Hebrew as Elohim. Mm-hmm. Um, Elohim is usually uh, a term that's used to describe God. Um, it's the word in Genesis chapter 1 that's used during every day of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Hebrew, um, literally, um, El means power. Um, for example, I think it's somewhere in Genesis chapter 34 where um, uh, I think it is um, Jacob's father-in-law um, who right. says – Laban says, because he's chasing after Jacob, he's upset that Jacob, you know, skipped, skipped town, right? Mm-hmm. But he, he says, yesh le'el yadi, right? There is strength in my hand. Now, el usually means, is, is a term for God, because the ultimate power, the ultimate strength is God. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Right? The word itself, though, simply means power. Yep. Um, for example, um, judges are sometimes called Elohim. Well, now we have this. There's the example in uh, Psalm chapter 82, right? We have uh, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges exactly. among the gods. Now, we have gods there with a, in my English translation with a little g. That's Elohim. Uh, further right. down in verse 6 or 7 in 82, I, I guess perhaps in the Hebrew, I said, you are gods, that's Elohim, and all of your children are uh, of the Most High. It, it goes on, but do we have another example of where Elohim is translated in the English as angels, uh, generally there speaking? Is, there is one, and I'm just… Um, because we do, we do have uh, Elohim oh, I know where. translated as judges, yep, you were saying? Well, again, it depends who's doing the translating. Mm. But I think if we go to Genesis chapter 6. Um, ah, and the, okay, so the Nephilim, is this where we're? Okay, so. No, okay, so. Yeah, so it, it, it's the word, it's in chapter 6, verse 2. Um, 
the sons of the rulers saw the daughters of men. Now, um, it's literally the sons of Elohim. Mm. Um, now, in the now, English translation here, I do have that the sons of God, capital G, uh, saw the daughters right. of men, so on and so forth. But that's not necessarily the way that it's uh, uh, so this is usually translated as rulers or mighty people. I was wrong. It's not, it's not translated as angels there. Um, I do remember coming across at least one example. Um, we do have – there's another example where, uh, you know, Moses is trying to get out of his uh, appointment and uh, God's getting cranky with him. He says, look, I can't talk. And he says, your brother will be – Brother will be your prophet. But he says that you, Moses, will uh, you be will, uh, God. That's right. That's right. He says you will be Elohim to, to Pharaoh. Right. right. That's chapter 7, verse 1 in Exodus. Now, could it be understood um, to say that you will be? Because we have a perfectly good word for messenger. Uh, malach. Mm. Um, uh, well, again, the, the word literally means um, powerful or with authority. And that's why it's used for judges. It's used for Moses because he's going to be someone that has authority over Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, it's not a proper name for God, um, which the Tetragrammaton would be. So Elohim is often used for God because there's, you know, no power mm. or authority like God. Mm. But we see because it's used in so many other contexts. Um, you know, it, it can mean human beings that are in a position of, um, you know, uh, authority or power. Um, I think in Psalm 82 that you were quoting, um, it's usually translated as God-like. Obviously, they're not God, but they're God-like. Um, B'nai Elohim, I think that it says. Um, so, you know, when we're looking at this verse here, I think, I think it's verse 6 in Psalm 8 here. Um, who, who is it saying that man is created a little bit lower than? Um, I think one of the reasons why using the word angels is much more meaningful is what would it mean to say that human beings were made a little bit lower than God? I mean, that's, that's hard to… That's, that is the question. So, if, if that's the way we take it, then what does that mean? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. We're not a little bit lower than God. We're <laughs> infinitely lower than God. Um, so, to say that we're a little bit less than the angels, you know, it's, it's an interesting question because in Jewish literature, human beings are seen as both greater than angels and not as great as angels. Um, you know, it's interesting that in the book of Zechariah and Zechariah, in the beginning of the book, I forget which chapter, maybe chapter two, mm -hmm. it speaks about God placing us um, or the, the subject of the sentence as mehalchim walkers bein ha'omdin, between those who stand still. And the angels are referred to as omdim, they are stationary, they're static. And human beings are referred to as mahalchem, they're goers, walkers, mm -hmm. because the angels are static. They don't have free will. They're created by God with as, as spiritual beings that don't really have free will. They simply, you know, do what God tells them to do. They act when they're, uh -huh. when they're commanded to act, yeah. Right. God says, jump, and they say how high, and mm -hmm. that's it. They're simply like, they're like Jaime the robot from uh, Get Smart. <laughs> <laughs> right? they, they do exactly as they're told. And they're, 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 they're not moral creatures because they're not tempted. They don't have free will. The human being, um, you know, 
is considered to be greater than the angels for that reason because we have to choose to be obedient mm. and it's it's that choice that makes us virtuous there's no virtue in a robot carrying out its commands mm. yeah. there there is virtue in a human being having to overcome a tremendous amount of resistance to be obedient mm. you know if for example the bible had a commandment that would say you know don't eat radioactive waste <laughs> um, you know, so who in the world wants to eat that? Mm. You know, but if God says, you know, don't eat things that could be very delicious, you know, it takes a certain amount of, um, you know, uh, decisive willpower. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to overcome a lot of resistance. Yeah. Uh, so the human being is, in some ways, greater than the angels, but in some ways, the angels are greater. They're more spiritual. Um, they're more perfect, if you want to use that word. Um, you know, they they don't have weaknesses. You know, so it's it's sort of a six of one, half a dozen of the other kind of comparisons. Mm. Um, but it, it it would make sense to speak about creating human beings a little bit less than the angels, having a little bit less, um, uh, you know, in in our potential, um, or in, in terms of who we are. Mm. Um, we can't see angels as greater, possibly, but to speak about being just a little bit less than God is is, is a bit absurd. Um, if, if if in fact that is what uh, the intention of of the, the word was, I mean, when we looked at when we look at uh, uh, eighty two, it can be um, Psalm eighty two. I, I believe it can be rendered as Judges uh, Elohim there. I, I just wonder if there's another more appropriate word, only because angels, we, we have a perfectly uh, a good word for messenger uh, that could have been used. Elohim, as you pointed out, El being power, Elohim being the plural, mighty powers, perhaps, uh, you made him a little lower than the mighty powers. And and just that we're talking about the observance of the the, 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 the vastness and majesty of the universe at night, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and yet you have made him a little lower than the mighty powers. It's just something interesting to, to uh, I think, meditate on. What does this possibly mean than just yeah. to accept uh, the word in the English as, as angels? Oh, for sure. It's not, uh, it's not a slam dunk. No. By the way, um, in Genesis one twenty six, when, when God says, let us uh, make man in our image, you know, mm. the, the question there is, who is God speaking to? Yes. So, one of the most common answers is that God is speaking to the angels that were created. And, uh, you know, so, you could say that, look, you know, um, in that the sense, angels here. Yeah, by, by extension, we could easily uh, 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 translate that. I think, I think with some justification, um, we could translate that as angels. And, and we back that up with what verses in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 and, and I think Malachi as well, uh, talking about the, the, uh, uh, the royal assembly before God. And right. Yeah, so, you know, w- with that in mind, I think, yeah, I think that's fair. But nevertheless, it's worth it's worth letting people know that the word there is Elohim, and it goes on to say, "And you have crowned him, man, with glory and honor." Uh, verse seven: You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Is it worth mentioning, by the way? Should we mention it yet, or do you want to come back to this? Uh, this is um, uh, loosely quoted in Hebrews in the New Testament. 
I didn't realize that. <laughs> we, we have, we, that's not on your radar at the moment. We we have I, this. Yeah, in, I just miss, I missed that. I missed that. Well, you'll know the you'll know the verse. It's uh, the passage. It's Hebrews chapter two, verses five through to nine. Uh, and it's subtitled, and of course this isn't in the text, but in the New King James, it's subtitled, The Son Made Lower Than Angels. Now, in the Greek, we do have angels uh, in the way that they've translated it, but it says, for he has not put, uh, sorry, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. It continues to say, for in that he put all in subjection under him, uh, he left nothing that is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Boy, this is a real <laughs> but it's a tongue twister. It's a tongue twister. But we see Jesus, who was made a, now is referring. Now it applies this to Jesus again as a messianic um, a prophecy fulfilled. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of the death, crowned uh, with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The interesting thing, of course, is that if if that was the, uh, uh, I mean, my my New King James um, Bible is highly Christologically slanted, and yet when it says uh, in verse five that the Son of Man, uh, who is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you visit him, usually uh, you would have a capital S for Son. Yes, uh, yes. But they don't do that here. They don't do it. But when it is uh, applied in in uh, when it's referenced in Hebrews, it seems to be uh, that the, or the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews would have us believe that this is about Jesus. It's interesting also that 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 translation you read or that that uh, version takes the word Elohim there as angels, mm. um, and uh, you know I would I would find it strange. Um, I shouldn't say strange. It's interesting to me that um, they would speak about Jesus as being made lower than the angels because that's um, sort of. Um, not what you often would expect from at least a high Christology, mm. um, you know, where Jesus is seen as, you know, uh, God in the flesh, mm. God himself. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I always find this to be one of the big confusing issues in the Greek scriptures in the New Testament. You know, do they really see God, uh, Jesus as God or as uh, you know, uh, less than God. It depends on the day, um, really, doesn't it? And the author. <laughs> <laughs> From one book to another, it just seems to go yeah. back and forth. Well, even within authors, Paul himself seems to vacillate mm. on this. We, I don't think anyone knows for sure. Uh, the, the, the current scholarship does not attribute Hebrews to Paul. Um, it may be a student of Paul or someone that, uh, you know, was Pauline. Um, but here, it's interesting here that this passage would speak about Jesus as being even lower than the angels. Mm. Um, I don't yet, think that they would. I, I think they would be thrown out of most evangelical churches. Who's you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think they, they would have been thrown out of the Council of Nicaea. I think we we saw that happen. Uh, <laughs> that this was one of the the hot topics uh, on the agenda there. 
But in any case, we'll, we'll return back to our psalm. Yes, so it's interesting. This verse here, um, verse 7, which speaks about um, having given man dominion. dominion, right, over the works of God's hands. By the way, here is interesting. It speaks about the work of God's hands, not the work of his fingers. Mm. Um, so it, it, it's interesting that earlier on it used the work of his fingers. Yeah. Um, uh, now, it can't be the, argued the Tal- that we do have we do have uh, the ability. It's not as if we can just go up to a lion and just because we're we're human uh, that we can tame the lion or or have dominion over the lion. But we have the ability, I think, is well established uh, to have dominion over uh, the animal kingdom, generally speaking, and uh, and to some extent, nature. Uh, we are able to manipulate things in our favour. Um, he has put all things under our feet, and it goes on to say, you know, sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, birds of the air and the fish and so on and so forth. You were going to say the Talmud says. Yeah, well, it's interesting because um, Genesis one twenty six, which you mentioned before, speaks about two elements. It mentions that uh, man is created in the image of God. And then it goes on to say right away in that verse, in Genesis one twenty six that God gave mm. man dominion over the earth, over the creation. And so here in this psalm, verse 6, speaks about the fact that man was made with this greatness. I mean, when it says that we were made a little bit less than the angels, that's, you know, um, putting a a big feather in our cap. It's not speaking about the the smallness of man. It's speaking there about the greatness of man, Mm. which would be parallel to the idea that God breathed into the human being the breath of life and has a we have a divine soul and mm. therefore we're in the image of god and here in the ne- very next verse after speaking about how we're just a little bit lower than the angels boom we were given dominion over the works of creation and in genesis 126 we're created in the image of god and then god puts everything uh under our hand mm-hmm. in our dominion but there's a caveat and the caveat is that even though we were given dominion we have to keep something in perspective. The Talmud in uh, Tractate Brachot, it's the first volume of the Talmud, page 35a, finds two verses in the book of Psalms that seem to contradict. Um, if you go to Psalm 24, verse 1, it begins by saying, La Shem Haaretz Umulah, to the Almighty, to the Lord, belongs the earth and the fullness of it. Mm-hmm. Meaning that God really owns, because God created the world, God owns the entire world. And it uses the word aretz, the earth itself. Mm-hmm. So the entire earth belongs to God. But in Psalm 115, verse 16, it says, Hashemayim shemayim lashem, aretz natan livnei adam. The heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he gave into the hands of mankind. So the Talmud is a bit bothered by this and says, well, which is it? Does, does the earth belong to man, as it says in verse one, in chapter 115, or does the earth belong to God, as it says in chapter 24? So the, they resolve this apparent contradiction by saying that one verse is speaking about reality before we say a blessing. Um, the other verse is speaking about reality after we say a blessing. I think that uh, the, what the, the idea of a blessing is for us to acknowledge where it comes from and who the real owner is. So the truth is that everything really does belong to God, and he only gives it to us for us to be stewards over 
if we acknowledge that we received it from him, um, if we walk around with the illusion that we are the real masters and the true masters and that it really ultimately belongs to us, then we don't really have this dominion. The dominion is given with a, a caveat. And the caveat is that we have to understand where our dominion comes from. Um, you know, otherwise things can be very dangerous. When human beings think that they own the world and we can do whatever we want, we see what happens. We see, for example, you know, so much environmental destruction going on because there are people who really think it belongs to me. I do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a sense of responsibility to a higher power. And so, you know, one of the the amazing, uh, you know, teachings in the Bible and in rabbinic literature is, you know, teachings about ecology and the environment that go back thousands of years. I mean, when I was growing up in the 60s, I never even heard this word ecology. I never knew the word existed. And yet, to the Bible, and philosophically and spiritually, this is a very, very important concept. You know, there's a famous rabbinic Midrash, which says that after God created uh, the world, he took Adam by the hand and he led him He led him through the Garden of Eden and he said to Adam, look at this beautiful world that I put you in. He said, be very, very careful not to destroy it in any way because if you do, there'll be no one to fix it after you. Hmm. So, we have a tremendous amount of responsibility as not the owners of the world, but as the stewards of the world. Um, and so, you know, this verse does speak about God giving us dominion, but it's not carte blanche. You know, it's not, you know, for us to ever believe that we're the true ultimate owners. Mm, mm. It continues on saying, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, all, it just gives the examples, all the sheep, the oxen, beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish in the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. And as I mentioned before, then it ends with the, uh, the way it began. But as you mentioned, without the second part of, of verse one, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And you were going to make a comment on that. Yeah, I found something very, very beautiful from Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinrib. Um, where he discusses this, and he says that, as I just mentioned, that it's true that God has entrusted his creation to us, which is an amazing thing. I mean, the, the, the psalm was speaking about how immense this world is, how vast it is, how mm. grand it is, how complex it is, and then the next breath, it says, and God made us have dominion over it. If you think about it, it's like mind-blowing. But, and there's a big but here, we have to fulfill the responsibilities that we were given. And the question is, are we able to? Meaning that God, it's a trust, that God, it's a holy trust that God has given us. A holy mission to be the, the stewards over the mm-hmm. creation and the question is, are we able to really fulfill that responsibility? So, Rabbi Weinrib refers us to a passage in the Talmud in Tractate Shabbat, uh, page 88b, um, where it seems to say that God thought that human beings could fulfill our responsibilities. And that's why he gave us the Torah. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the whole reason he gave us the Torah was as the guide for us to help us responsibly um, be in charge of this world. And the Talmud tells an amazing story. The Talmud says that 
when God intended to give the Torah to human beings, the angels in the heavens objected. And they felt that God's Torah was too sacred and too holy to be entrusted to mere mortals. Um, they felt that the Torah should remain in heaven and that human beings would sully it, would, would cheapen it, would dirty it. And so, in this passage in the Talmud, that they quote the angels as saying, Lord Sovereign, how glorious is your name in all the earth. Your splendor, meaning your Torah, is praised as high as the heavens, which is basically verse 2 in our chapter, meaning that the, the Talmud has the angels reciting this verse in the beginning of this chapter. And, and the, the way that, that it's understood is that the angels are saying that God your name uh, is glorious in the entire earth, in all the earth, and your splendor, or they understand it to mean the Torah, is praised as high as the heavens. And what they're saying is, and you should leave it in the heavens, leave the Torah in the heavens, do not let it be sullied and dirtied by mere human beings. So that's what happened when God was about to give the Torah to Moses. So in this passage in the Talmud, God turns to Moses and says to Moses, "Nu, what do you what do you say to the angels?" So Moses turns to the angels, and he asks them, "Well, what does it say in the Torah? You don't want God to give the Torah to human beings, and you think it should stay up in heaven. Well, what does the Torah say?" So I'm going to share what 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 happens here in this fascinating discussion. So um, Moses says to them, "Well, it says in the Torah um, that." Uh, in the first of the Ten Commandments, I'm God, your Lord, who brought you out of Egypt. So Moses turns to the angels and says, did you go down to Egypt? Were you slaves to Pharaoh? Why should you have the Torah? And then he says, what else does it say in the Torah? So it says in the Torah, do not have any other gods before me. It's also in the Ten Commandments. So he says to the angels, do you live among people who worship idols? That you need to be warned against worshiping idols? And then Moses asks them rhetorically, what else does it say in the Torah? It says, remember the Shabbat to keep it holy. So he says to the angels, do you then work during the week that you need to have the concept of the Shabbat? And what else does it say in the Torah? It says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the prohibition against swearing falsely. So he says, where do you come to swear? What kind of arguments do you angels have? He says, do you have business dealings? That you have to argue and take oaths? What else does it say in the Torah? Honor your father and your mother. Do you have a father and a mother? What else does it say in the Torah? Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Is there any jealousy among you? Do you have an evil impulse that you have to be told not to murder and not to commit adultery? So what happens at the end of Moses' impassioned uh, you know, defense is that, um, you know, the angels sort of give in. And uh, it's very clear that the Torah was not meant to be kept in the heavens. Obviously, it belongs precisely on the earth. That's, that's what it was meant to do. It was meant to really help human beings living on the earth live more holy lives. Well, as it, so as, God, it is, uh, as it is written in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, we have it in, in verse 12, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will uh, ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we should hear it and, and do it. 
nor it is beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the, over the sea and bring it to us so we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Beautiful. So in this passage, God agrees with Moses. He gives the Torah to Moses. And therefore, the psalm ends with just the first half of verse 2 without the plea of the angels, right, who were saying, you know, that your uh, your splendor is praised as high as the heavens. That is not here at the end of this psalm. It just ends by saying, how glorious is your name in all of the earth, because that's where the Torah belongs. Mm-hmm. And that's, according to Rabbi Weinrib, why verse 10 here only quotes half of the verse. Mm. Interesting. It's. I have to say, it's difficult to reconcile the concept of angels not having free will and and the <laughs> goings on of that story. I'm not too sure. That's uh, one for the listeners to consider. Well, you know, the, this the story actually requires a much deeper study because when you think of it, you know, Moses' response to them is sort of too obvious. Meaning, what were the angels thinking? You know, that they should be. You know, the Torah belongs in heaven where, you know, it's, it's really meaningful to them. So it's not easy to understand on a, on a sort of when you, when you penetrate beneath the surface of this story, what's going on. Because, you know, the, the Moses, you know, shooting them down is sort of like, duh, it's like too obvious. Um, but, the, it, you know, the learning how to read Midrash uh, is an art form, meaning that, uh, you know, it, it's it's never uh, a good strategy to take these midrashim, these stories, literally. Um, mm-hmm. a, a famous rabbi once said, if you take it literally, you're an idiot. And if you say that it's ridiculous, you're not so smart. So, <laughs> <laughs> What you're saying yeah, is that there's something in it for everybody. <laughs> he's, he, no, the, the point he's making that they always make is that when we read these midrashim, these stories in the, the midrash, the Talmud, uh, the point is not to get too hung up with uh, understanding, you know, how does it work and is it re- is it true? Did that really happen? But what are they really trying to teach? What's the lesson that they're trying to teach? Um, that's always the the, um, the the really the the goal of studying these texts. And that is um, uh, that's. That's the end of our. That's where we leave it. That's it. We've done. We've we've uh, put the icing sugar on another cake. How's that? That's all, folks. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> now, I, as I mentioned before, I'm going to Israel. I'll be back in a few weeks, and uh, God willing, we will do Psalm chapter nine. Uh, hopefully, before Hanukkah. What do you reckon? God willing, we'll do that. And I I wish you a bon voyage. Uh, a safe trip. I'm, I'm so jealous of you because I wish I could be there again. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I I think you're going to have an amazing time. I'm sure you will. And all the people on the, the tour with you. And uh, I'll be thinking of you and I'll be thinking of all the your fellow travelers. And I, I, I'm sure it's going to be an incredible uh, time in the Holy it's Land. It's going to be great. I, I'll, I will, I will tell you all about it. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to have you back again, Rabbi Michael Skoback, Jews for Judaism in Canada. Uh, the website JewsforJudaism.ca. That's JewsforJudaism.ca. Thank you for coming back on the program, my friend. Thank you for being with me and having me. Always a pleasure. And until my next pleasure. time, dear listeners, be blessed, be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom.